Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On an evening in early October 1974, Carlo Gambino walked into Gargiulo's restaurant in Coney Island. The 72-year-old wore his typical vague smile and inconspicuous clothes. No one would know he was the most powerful crime boss in the country. No one, that is, except Dominic Mimi Cielo. Mimi was a respected street soldier of the Colombo Mafia family. When he was sober, he was a generally pleasant guy. But when he was drunk, he turned abrasive, outspoken, and violent. And when Mimi spotted Carlo Gambino sitting down at Gargiulo's restaurant, he'd already had a drink too many. Mimi shouted insults and curses at Carlo from all the way across the restaurant, harassing him while he was trying to enjoy a meal. Disrespecting the boss of another mafia family was a major breach of decorum, especially when you're just a lowly soldier. But in response, Carlo just looked at him. He didn't like to resort to violence unless absolutely necessary. Finally, Mimi's friends dragged him out of the restaurant, and Carlo went back to his meal. Mimi wasn't seen again and was declared a fugitive after missing an important court date. Eventually, an informant led the FBI to Otto's social club in Brooklyn. There, they found Mimi's body wrapped in plastic and encased in the cement floor. He'd never disrespect Carlo Gambino again. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our first episode on Carlo Gambino the boss of one of the most recognizable mafia organizations in the country. This week, we'll take a look at his rise from the streets of Sicily to a world-renowned crime leader operating in Brooklyn, New York. Next week, we'll explore the setbacks that led to the end of his reign over the Gambino crime family. Carlo Gambino was feared and respected within the mafia underworld. 
Though he maintained a constant low-key tact, he was known to wield his power through violence when necessary. This approach helped him in his rise to become the leader of the Gambino crime family. But before that, in 1956, Carlo was named the underboss of Albert Anastasia's crime family. Often called the Lord High Executioner, Albert was a highly feared boss who had become increasingly violent and unstable. Luckily, the more low-key Carlo was his second in command, and no matter what it took, he wouldn't let things get out of control. Albert and Carlo's mob was part of a nationwide network of mafia groups. The commission, as it was called, was run by five crime families that came together to handle conflicts among themselves without having to rely on violence. There were certain rules the commission members were held to. Compliance was strictly enforced, but Albert seemed to think he was above the law. As the co-founder of Murder Incorporated, Albert was part of the enforcement arm of the Mafia. Under his oversight, the notorious death squad completed an estimated 1,000 mob-related assassinations by his death in 1957. He was one of the most violent mobsters of his time, and few people dared to mess with him. Not only was Albert extremely dangerous, many of his own people thought he was insane. Another one of his nicknames was Il Terremoto, or the Earthquake, which gives a clue about his general disposition. And Carlo, his second-in-command, was among those growing concerned about his ability to lead. Albert's decisions had angered a series of power players in the mob world, like Vito Genovese, head of the Genovese crime family, and casino hotshot Meyer Lansky. Their frustration grew, according to some sources, when Albert ordered a hit on a young Brooklyn man named Arnold Schuster. One day, Albert saw Arnold on television talking about his role as a witness in a bank robbery investigation. Albert couldn't stand squealers. He didn't know anything about Arnold or the bank robbery, but he wanted the snitch to pay. Several days after his television appearance, Arnold was walking home from his job as a tailor's assistant. A gunman shot him twice in the groin and once through each eye, leaving him dead on the pavement. The kill order had allegedly come directly from Albert. In arranging this hit, Albert blatantly violated a cardinal rule in the Mafia, you never kill civilians. Murdering outsiders came with unwanted public scrutiny, but Albert operated by his own rules. Albert really broke rank, though, when he forced his way into the lucrative casino industry in Havana, Cuba. The other commission bosses had neatly divided up that business years earlier, but Albert decided to open up his own competing casinos on the island anyway. After that, the commission was ready to take action. As a first step, they contacted Albert's second-in-command, Carlo Gambino. Not only did he share their concerns, Carlo also saw an opportunity to take over as the family's new leader. Both Carlo and Albert were in their mid-50s, so he wasn't going to rise to boss through natural succession. If he wanted Albert out of the way, he'd have to polish off the pistols. 
Rather than get his own hands dirty, Carlo enlisted another mobster, Joe the Blonde Biondo, and gave him the kill order. In turn, Joe the Blonde enlisted his own associates to carry out the job. On the morning of October 25th, 1957, Albert was at the Grosso Barber Shop in Midtown Manhattan's Park Sheraton Hotel. As he spoke to the barber, two gunmen with scarves over their faces rushed into the shop. One of them shoved the barber out of the way, then they opened fire. Albert hurled himself from the chair, breaking the footrest along the way. Shots flew wildly around the barber shop until one caught Albert in the head. His white dress shirt was left wrinkled and blotted with blood. He folded lifeless to the floor, landing in a fetal position. Law enforcement has yet to officially solve the crime, but it was just a few weeks until Carlo was officially the top boss of the newly renamed Gambino family. Becoming the head of one of the most renowned mob families in the world wasn't a dream during Carlo's early days. He was born in 1902 to Tommaso Gambino and Felicia Castellano. They lived in Palermo, the capital of Sicily. By the early 20th century, this island off the coast of mainland Italy had a strong mafia presence. The mafioso was so powerful that even officers of the law and military were afraid of the area. Carlo joined the underworld at a young age through a family connection. His mother, Felicia, belonged to a mob family. While Carlo was barely a teen, she used her influence to introduce him to a mafia group called the Men of Respect. Though he was slight of build and only five foot seven, Carlo impressed his bosses with his intellect, calm nature, and ability to take on difficult tasks like murder. In 1921, he was rewarded with an induction into the Honored Society, which is often described as a highly disorganized European mafia. Still only 19 years old, Carlo started carrying out kill orders for the mob syndicate. The year 1921 not only marked change in Carlo's life, but for the rest of Italy. The Italian King Victor Emmanuel III lost power as the fascist party claimed greater control. The party's initial rise saw Benito Mussolini take a seat in the newly elected parliament. The changing landscape pointed Carlo's eyes to the United States for better opportunities. He wouldn't be going it alone in the U.S. His mother's brother, Giuseppe Castellano, had already started to build a life in New York City. So in the latter part of 1921, Carlo stowed away on the SS Vincenzo Florio. It took a month to travel the nearly 4,900 miles from Sicily to the United States. He lived on nothing but anchovies and wine the whole trip, the only foods being hauled by the cargo boat. Carlo was the ship's only passenger. The boat docked in Virginia on December 23, 1921, and Carlo illegally entered the country. He walked down the gangplank in his natty three-piece suit and black fedora. His first cousin, Paul Castellano, met him shortly after he disembarked. They quickly headed north to New York City. 
Carlo stayed in his cousin's apartment on Navy Street in Brooklyn, near the waterfront. The family quickly put Carlo to work at a trucking company Paul owned. But that was just petty cash, not the fortune he crossed the ocean to find. So Carlo reconnected with a friend from Sicily, Tommy Lucchese, who helped him segue into the bootlegging business. Two years before Carlo landed on U.S. soil, the Volstead Act was voted in by Congress. The law banned the manufacture, sale, or transport of liquor and unintentionally ushered in a violent black market of illegal alcohol. Carlo also helped his cousins, the Castellanos, with their own illegal liquor operations. The Castellanos were affiliated with the D'Aquila crime family, and with an introduction from his relatives, Carlo was officially brought into the organization. At the young age of 19, Carlo had become a made man in the mafia. Around the same time, Tommy connected Carlo to the Italian and Jewish gang called the Young Turks. The organization included notable crime lords in the making, such as Albert Anastasia, Vito Genovese, Lucky Luciano, and Meyer Lansky. Pretty soon, Carlo was running liquor for this gang, too. Then, in 1928, rival gangster Joseph Joe the Boss Masseria gunned down the head of the D'Aquila crime family and absorbed the crew into his own, including the young Carlo Gambino. Joe the Boss was the most powerful mafioso in the U.S. at the time, and Carlo was suddenly a key member of his team. Each of these crews were highly involved in robbery, illegal gambling, and bootlegging. Between all of them, Carlo always found a way to make money through crime. And all that bootleg liquor came in handy on December 5, 1926, when Carlo, age 24, wedded Catherine Castellano. The couple was married in Brooklyn, the part of New York City where they made their home. If the name Castellano sounds familiar, it's because it's Carlo's mother's maiden name. Catherine was Carlo's first cousin. At the time, it was common practice in Italy, and though taboo, is still technically legal in New York State today. Meanwhile, back in their home country, Benito Mussolini was continuing in his rise to power. And when he became dictator in 1922, Mussolini began chasing the mafia out of the country. Like Carlo, they landed in the United States. The influx of gangsters from Italy led to a new, better-organized mafia stateside. One member of this exodus was Salvatore Maranzano, who was second-in-command to one of the most powerful mafia crews in Sicily. When Maranzano landed in New York, he inserted himself into the city's extortion and illegal gambling operations. He figured that since he was coming from the powerful Sicilian mafia, he was far superior to the knockoff gangsters in this country. It was only natural that he should run things in the United States. Joe, the boss, disagreed. The clash between the two mobsters sparked one of the largest gangland wars in history. It left scores of bodies flooding the streets of New York City, and Carlo was right in the middle of it. Coming up, 
Carlo gets thrown into the line of fire. Now, back to the story. Even before arriving in New York in 1921, Carlo Gambino was already highly involved in mafia life, working as a contract killer back in Sicily. Recognizable by his beak-like nose and puckish grin, the unassuming gangster instilled fear even during his early days in the mob. And once he was stateside, Carlo quickly moved up the ranks. By 1929, when Carlo was 27 years old, the tension between his crew's leader, Joe the Boss Masseria, and the recently arrived Salvatore Maranzano reached a fevered peak. This ushered in what was known as the Castellamorese War. Joe the Boss enlisted some of the top mafia men on his crew, including Carlo's friends Lucky Luciano, Albert Anastasia, and Vito Genovese. Well-connected Jewish gangsters Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel also sided with him. But Joe the Boss didn't really like doing business with non-Sicilians, so his patience was thin with the men from mainland Italy, like Lucky and Vito. These younger men bided their time in the hopes that Joe the Boss and Maranzano would just knock each other off. Once they did, the new blood could take control. The war raged on for nearly four years with constant assassinations and violence. Dozens of mobsters were left dead on the New York City streets. The ones who survived were constantly looking over their shoulders, afraid they would be next. The prolonged war also cut into profits on both sides of the fight. This allowed Jewish and Irish crime bosses to get footholds in industries the Italian mob groups had once firmly controlled. The razor-sharp, criminal-savvy Carlo saw an opportunity to end this war before it undercut any more of their enterprises. Sensing that he was on the losing side of the battle, he approached their rival, Salvatore Maranzano, in secret. Carlo offered to jump to Maranzano's side, and the Sicilian boss readily welcomed a fellow mobster from Palermo. When Carlo flipped, he brought Lucky, Albert Anastasia, and several other friends with him. But Maranzano set the price for their admission. If the men wanted to work with him, they would have to do away with Joe the Boss once and for all. On April 15, 1931, Lucky lured Joe the Boss to an Italian restaurant in Coney Island, Brooklyn. After they were seated, Lucky excused himself to the restroom. That's when Anastasia and a band of killers burst through the restaurant's front door. They pumped bullets into Joe the Boss, leaving him dead. Carlo and crew brought a violent end to the four years of the Castellamarese War. Immediately after Joe the Boss's assassination, Maranzano called a meeting of all the top mafiosos in New York City. Reportedly, over 500 men gathered in a warehouse in the Bronx. Maranzano told the mobsters to leave behind whatever happened in the past. There would be no more hatred between their factions. It was time to forgive and forget. Salvatore carved out five distinct families, each with a boss and an underboss. The boss served as the head of the enterprise, while the underboss was his second-in-command, 
often serving as a counselor or advisor. Under these top two men, each family would have captains who would serve as middle management over the rest of the men, called soldiers. The five bosses Maranzano named were Lucky Luciano, Tommy Lucchese, Joe Bonanno, Joe Profaci, and Vincent Mangano. Albert Anastasia was designated as Mangano's underboss, and the 29-year-old Carlo Gambino was named a captain in the same family. And of course, Maranzano declared himself boss of all bosses, the overseer of all five families. The younger mobsters went along with Maranzano's plans, but they didn't so much like his self-proclaimed position. So just five months after that meeting, Lucky Luciano hired four killers to bulldoze their way into Maranzano's office and shoot him dead. Lucky called the bosses of the other four families to tell them Salvatore had been eliminated, and with him went the title of boss of all bosses. Instead, they'd be ruled by a nationwide collective called the Commission. Lucky saw the Commission as a way to stem conflicts and avoid another Castellamarese war. The Mafia would be controlled by a council of the leaders from all five families. Instead of relying on violence, they could resolve their disputes through diplomacy and discussion. The ever-business-like Carlo Gambino thrived in this reborn Mafia. He became a top earner in the Mangano family and in the mob world, with money comes prestige. Carlo's main areas of interest were loan sharking, illegal gambling, and collecting protection money from area merchants. When the Volstead Act was repealed in 1933, Carlo saw another opportunity to fill his pockets by cashing in on the now legal booze industry. In the last days of prohibition, Carlo scooped up as many illegal liquor stills as he could get his hands on, from New York all the way to Maryland. When Prohibition ended, the price of alcohol skyrocketed, and Carlo owned the largest illegal liquor distribution system on the East Coast. Of course, he was still producing his alcohol under the table and not paying taxes, so Carlo could easily undercut prices set by legal distributors. The gangster made himself and the Mangano crime family a fortune by the mid-1930s. And a part of Carlo's proceeds went to evading the law. He was arrested several times in 1937 and 1938, but was always able to pay his way out. But in 1939, his luck finally ran out. On May 23, 1939, Carlo was convicted for conspiracy to defraud the United States of liquor taxes. The 36-year-old was ordered to pay a fine of $2,500 and sentenced to 22 months in a Pennsylvania prison. When Carlo walked free again, he went right back to crime, turning his attention to government-issued ration stamps. As the United States anticipated entering World War II, the government began issuing ration stamps in August 1941. Without these stamps, you couldn't buy limited resources like sugar, meat, and gas. And some big spenders would pay through the nose 
to get more than their fair share. Carla learned that the ration stamps were being held in vaults on an upper floor of the Office of Price Administration. It would take his best safecrackers and second-story men, but Carlo Gambino was going to get his hands on them. Coming up, Carlo breaks into a government vault and into a new criminal industry. Now, back to the story. The soft-spoken but ruthless Carlo Gambino had his hands in a variety of mob operations, ranging from liquor distribution to gambling to robbery. After serving time for tax evasion in 1937, Carlo kept a low profile while still ramping up his criminal activities. When Carlo found out that ration stamps were being kept in vaults at the Office of Price Administration, he hatched a plot to steal them. He put together a team of expert burglars, and they hatched a plan to break in through the upper floor windows, crack the safe, and grab the stamps before anyone noticed they were there. The elaborate scheme was successful. His guys walked away with hundreds of thousands of ration stamps. Carlo then turned around and sold the stamps on the black market at bargain prices. After that robbery, the government started hiding the ration stamps in banks to better protect them from another break-in. But Carlo figured out a way to work around this hurdle. It was insultingly easy, actually. He just bribed officials at the Office of Price Administration into giving him the stamps. In the end, he still came out with a profit. This racket, combined with his other illegal operations, made Carlo and the Mangano family millions. But easy living never lasts long in the mafia world. Carlo's family was run by the brothers Vincent and Philip Mangano. Their official second-in-command was Carlo's old friend, Albert Anastasia, but Albert and the brothers rarely saw eye-to-eye. The Manganos considered themselves the brains of the enterprise, while Albert was the muscle. That was an understatement. Since the 1930s, Albert, nicknamed the Lord High Executioner, had been operating the Mafia's most notorious killing squad, Murder Incorporated. Not the kind of guy you want to get on the wrong side of. What really scared the Mangano brothers was Albert's friendship with the other commission bosses. The other families would routinely bypass the Manganos and call Albert directly when they had a job for him. This was a violation of the commission's code of conduct, and it was just plain insulting. Vincent and Philip confronted Albert many times about how he couldn't work with other bosses without clearing it with them first. Several of these conversations happened in front of Carlo. He had a choice to make, stick up for his old friend or stay loyal to the boss. It was a tough call. By 1951, the Manganos had reigned over their crime family for 20 years. At the time, no other boss had controlled a family for that long. But, as was often the case in the Mafia world, their run was bound to come to a violent end. On April 19, 1951, Philip Mangano was found murdered. His brother Vincent vanished the very same day. He was never found. 
Albert consistently denied being involved with the Mangano deaths, even when he was brought before the commission to answer for it. The other mafia leaders condemned Albert's alleged murders, but there wasn't much in the way of punishment. In fact, Albert was named the new head of the family. The Mangano crime family was now the Anastasia family. And with Albert's rise to boss, Carlo was elevated to underboss in 1956. He was Albert's right hand and just one heartbeat away from the top. But even with his newfound status, Carlo kept maintaining a low profile. He and his family lived in a modest row house in Brooklyn. His only recognizable vanity was the license plate on his Buick, which read CG1. Under Albert's leadership, the family continued to rake in money. He controlled more businesses and more territories than several other families combined. But his violent approach and unstable behavior started to concern the other four bosses in the commission. By 1957, the skeptics were joined by Albert's own underboss, Carlo Gambino. Carlo allegedly enlisted Joe the Blonde and his murderous crew to take Albert out. They gunned him down while he was getting his hair cut in a midtown Manhattan barbershop. After less than seven years, Albert's reign was over. And his murderer, Carlo Gambino, was next in line for power. Three weeks after Albert's murder, the commission called a summit of all the mafia bosses in the country. About a hundred men gathered for the meeting, which took place on a 53-acre estate in sleepy Appalachian, New York. Part of the agenda was to formally name Albert's replacement and divvy up his enterprises. But the carefully planned event took a terrible turn. Naturally, the local police noticed that hundreds of nice cars from out of state were pouring into the small town of Appalachian. They tracked the plate numbers, and lo and behold, most of the cars belonged to convicted criminals. The meeting had barely begun when state and local police raided the estate. Many of the bosses fled into the woods, only to run into roadblocks on the other side. Over half of the attendees were arrested, including Vito Genovese, who'd called the meeting, Joseph Barbara, who owned the house, and of course, Carlo Gambino. But everything worked out in the end. The bosses all claimed they were visiting Joe Barbara with well wishes because they'd heard he was ill. Carlo got off scot-free, and even better, he formally assumed control over Albert's former crime family. Carlo, at age 55, was now the godfather of the Gambino family. Carlo inherited one of the most powerful criminal enterprises in the country. Albert's operations included loan sharking, contract killing, illegal gambling, drug trafficking, and racketeering, with extensive control over labor unions working on the waterfront. Soon after taking power, Carlo added the New York Longshoremen Union to his roster, which controlled more than 90% of all New York City's ports. After that, he took over a labor union at New York International Airport, 
now known as JFK, one of the most active airports in the country. And while he was expanding his family's reach, he also trimmed out some of his predecessor's more unsavory operations. Carlo had been involved in drug trading throughout his almost lifelong tenure in the Mafia. But while heroin and cocaine were lucrative, selling drugs brought too much attention from law enforcement. And the long prison sentences for drug offenses were dangerous to the whole operation. If any of his members were arrested, they might be tempted to flip in exchange for leniency. So, Carlo sent a clear message to his family. Deal and die. Anyone who dared to sell drugs while in his syndicate would face the consequences. Even with his growing power, the secretive Carlo maintained his quiet and controlled style. That approach helped him create new rackets in New York while also expanding to Miami, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. By the early 1960s, money was rolling in. By this time, the Gambino family included between 500 and 800 soldiers within 30 crews. Combined, their enterprise was bringing in an estimated half a billion a year. Carlo was steadily climbing to become the most powerful crime boss in the United States. He had a loyal group of followers, including his cousin, Big Paul Castellano. Paul had been a companion for Carlo ever since he arrived in the United States. But even years after Albert's death, there were still those who were loyal to their murdered leader. With a culture of double crosses and secret alliances, a betrayal from Albert's loyalists could be lurking around any dark corner. Albert's devotees weren't the only ones keeping a watchful eye on Carlo. After the widely publicized bust of the Appalachian meeting, federal law enforcement finally had to stop ignoring the mafia. Carlo had suddenly transformed into a priority for FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. In a memo from May 1962, the law enforcement agency identified Carlo as a key member of the commission. They were going to keep a close eye on his activities. The FBI planned to take Carlo Gambino fully out of operation, unless one of his rivals did it first. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week when we'll dive into the problems that ended Carlo Gambino's reign. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, 
Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Kingpins was written by Chandra Thomas, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Howell Hargett and Kate Leonard. <laughs>